Welcome to PSQH, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talked to Rick Boothman, a strategic consultant at Press Ganey, about why hospitals should disclose medical errors. And now, on to the interview. I'm joined today by Rick Boothman. He's a strategic consultant at Press Ganey, and we're going to talk about why hospitals should disclose medical error. Welcome, Rick. Uh, hi, Jay. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. And uh, before we get started, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do with uh, Press Ganey. I'd love, love to. Um, I started in professional life uh, in 1980 as a personal injury trial lawyer. Uh, in those days, um, medical malpractice wasn't seen as that much of a specialty. So I had a wide, wider range of um, cases that I was handling. But for the most part, we were representing doctors and hospitals in Michigan at the time. And um, it wasn't very long after I started that I developed a pretty good book of business and a good following. So I would say within the first few years, I was pretty much at least 80% devoted to the defense of medical malpractice cases. Over the years, um, my practice expanded. I formed a law firm um, and I was working in Michigan and Ohio, um, mostly doing medical malpractice defense. And during that time, uh, one of my clients, uh, one of my flagship clients was the University of Michigan. And I had represented them for some 20 years when in um, the year 2001, uh, really through some serendipitous things that happened at the university, uh, I had an opportunity to carry out what had been on my mind for several years before then. Uh, that is a better way of responding to the medical malpractice problem. Um, I made a pretty good living as a trial lawyer on a lot of clinical problems and a lot of clinical characters that we saw over and over again. And it occurred to me, or it wasn't lost on me at all over those years that nobody seemed to be really learning from the cases I was handling. Mm -hmm. uh, so by the year 2001, I had in my mind a different approach. Um, one that basically, was under uh, was uh, was founded on some pretty basic foundational thoughts like uh, why did the University of Michigan or any of my other clients really need a courtroom to figure out when they could have and should have um, cared for somebody differently and avoided the injury? Uh, all of my clients, especially the University of Michigan, was highly eth were highly ethical and. Um, they ultimately did what I thought was the right thing. As a defense lawyer, you have the luxury of sort of steering your clients toward what may be the right result. But it came very, at a very huge expense when you think about it. Uh, in those days, um, was not unusual to defend a case for three or four years. Uh, when I started in practice, it was as long as seven years. Wow. And um, usually at six figures of uh, out-of-pocket expense, even in cases that we won, um, but an even greater emotional expense to everyone involved, not just the patient, but certainly the caregivers that I was seeing in a graphic way. And as I alluded to up front, it occurred to me that 
um, we weren't really learning much from these cases, which we were seeing over and over again. Uh, so in 2001, I left private practice a bit naively, thinking that I could put a new process in place in two years. And I proudly told my wife and my partners that I would be back in two years. And uh, 17 and a half years later, I retired from the University of Michigan in 2018. And then joined Prescini. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna follow up the, uh, on the, um, what was different about the what we did at the University of Michigan. Mm -hmm. So at the University of Michigan, starting in 2001, um, I basically said to the university, you don't need lawyers and 90% of your claims to know when you could have and should have done better and avoided harm to your patients. On the other hand, uh, medicine has a built-in um, ambiguity that it is possible to do everything correctly uh, according to the standard of practice, according to prevailing best practices in medicine, and still have a bad outcome. And that doesn't necessarily mean that anyone did anything wrong. Human beings are widely variable. Uh, medicine is always changing and uh, re being refined. So this challenge of how to respond to a patient who has an unplanned clinical outcome or an undesirable clinical outcome uh, has been a problem ever since medicine began, frankly. And it is a reality uh, when you think about it. I'm always humbled by the caregivers that I have represented over the years. When you think about the fact that they stick their necks out every single day uh, in an amazing uh, act of uh, dedication to to work in an inherently dangerous business with inherently dangerous uh, tools and medicines and practices like cutting into people's bellies. You can't do any of that risk-free. So how do you determine uh, what is claims worthy, if you will, or or what was an avoidable medical mistake versus uh, doing everything right and still having an unplanned clinical outcome. That really became the key question. And un oddly to me, uh, for as long as anybody can remember, literally going back into the 17 and 1800s, the question and the challenge of dealing with a patient who's actually been harmed in the course of their medical care has always been relegated to the legal profession and um, by extension, the insurance industry. But there are serious problems with that. And as I thought and saw over the decades that I practiced, um, the fact that nobody seemed to be learning very much from the claims that I was handling, the, uh, a number of reasons for that kind of stood out for me the legal profession is by nature and by intention uh, an adversarial process. So the whole idea behind Western legal um, jurisprudence is really that uh, when we have a dispute that parties can't fix or solve on their own, the way we handle that is really through a contest. Uh, we call that a trial, right. but in every respect, that's what it is, right? 
And as a lawyer, I was never there when it, whatever the it is, happened. Uh, so I never knew really what was the truth and what wasn't. And five people can witness the same events uh, uh, and have five different memories of it only an hour later. So the law is actually a little humble in that regard and says the way we're going to solve these dilemmas that can't be solved otherwise is through a trial. And lawyers, uh, guided by rules of ethics and rules of evidence, would marshal the evidence in favor of their clients and put it up for a jury. I mean, that's the general idea behind litigation. The trouble with that is the goal is to win. The goal isn't necessarily to find out the truth. Right. But all of the healthcare providers that I, re- uh, re- uh, uh, that I represented had a pretty good handle on really the truth. And instead of relegating this to the gamesmanship of trial lawyering, uh, I said to the University of Michigan, you don't need lawyers to know when you've screwed up and you are an ethical organization. I had 20 years of experience with them. We ought to just get on top of these things very quickly because the other part of the equation was that I realized as a trial lawyer, I was part of the problem by prolonging uh, any conclusion. So if a patient gets hurt in year one and it takes anywhere from three to five years or more to even get a conclusion, there are a lot of obvious problems with that, right? We're putting other patients at risk in that interim. Um, We are withholding uh, compensation to the patients who deserve compensation. And we're hanging all of this terribly over our caregivers' heads. Um, and that affects all sorts of things. That is, that is implicated in burnout. It's implicated in turning people cynical. It's implicated in uh, high anxiety in the workplace. I mean, there there's not much good about it. And then you complicate it with a financially driven insurance industry and legal industry that is mostly focused on avoiding financial loss. So our advice from the defense perspective to caregivers has actually, in my opinion, been very counterproductive to uh, consistent clinical improvement. When you, uh, uh, if you do this, uh, ask these questions across the country of lawyers representing hospitals, I, I can almost guarantee you that their advice will always be the same in the setting of a patient who's been harmed in their care. Don't talk to that patient. Right. Whatever you do, don't 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 make any admissions. Right. Um, be careful who you talk to because if it's outside the attorney-client relationship, it could come back to haunt you in court. Everything was designed to protect the defense of that case in court. But what happens when you defend care we're not proud of? All we're doing is putting other patients at risk, putting other caregivers at risk, uh, and prolonging any fix of the underlying problem to begin with. So I didn't feel um, that the status quo was doing uh, any good for the clients that I represented. Um, So at the University of Michigan, we uh, borrowed heavily from a predecessor. The Lexington, Kentucky Veterans Administration Hospital had just earlier published an article on the benefits of what they called extreme honesty. 
Dr. Steve Kramen uh, was the lead author of that piece, and uh, he saw it as an ethical imperative. Um, and knowing Steve, uh, I can understand that. I saw it a little differently. I saw it as an integral piece of patient safety, that you can't fix a problem unless you acknowledge that you have a problem to begin with. Uh, and defending care we weren't proud of was certainly counterproductive to anything uh, in terms of clinical improvement. So at the University of Michigan, I basically said a very simple um, uh, statement to the uh, healthcare providers there, I don't serve you well by defending care we're not proud of, and we certainly don't serve you well by stonewalling patients, even when the care was appropriate. We ought, They ought to uh, does, they are. They deserve to have a full explanation. So we formed what later became known as the Michigan model, uh, an approach that said we want to know about untoward clinical outcomes as soon as possible, and we would get to the bedside and do three things right away. We would secure the clinical environment so nobody got hurt while we were sorting out what happened. Uh, we would support the patient and um, get to the patient's bedside and uh, promise full disclosure or full um, explanation for what happened. Uh, but in the meantime, make sure that we were taking care of the patient's clinical interests and new needs. Um, but we would also get our arms around the caregivers who were also traumatized by what happened. I mean, nobody goes into healthcare uh, intending to hurt anyone. Right. So. So that was the first step, and the dealing with the patient was guided by three simple principles. Uh, first, if uh, we injured a patient through unacceptable or uh, inappropriate health care, it was our goal to move quickly and fairly to compensate that patient and do our best to make it right. But secondly, if the care was appropriate, we owed our caregivers uh, full support because we're asking them to do inherently dangerous things every day. And then thirdly, and oddly, most controversial in 2001, the third principle was that we would hardwire learning from these events as quickly as possible. We were not going to wait until the conclusion of litigation before we even thought about that. Um, that became known as the Michigan model and was widely publicized once word got out on, uh, about what we were doing. It was widely publicized with headlines like Apology Saves Money, which I really bristled at because it was never intended to be um, a way of saving money. Although, as it turned out, happily, it really does save a lot of claims dollars. Um, but that's the heart of this whole approach, which has now become known by uh, academics as uh, communication and resolution programs, CRPs. Um, what was so the... That's, that's, kind of, that's kind of my story so sure. far. Um, so it's been 20 plus years. Uh, what, what, you know, I guess, what was the initial reaction to it, uh, to the Michigan model and, and sort of how is, how have, uh, organizations sort of, uh, have they accepted it as time's, time has moved on? Um, th that's an excellent question because the arc of the initial um, stories about this and where it exists right now is pretty dramatic. Hmm. Um, 
the first newspaper report that came out about what we were doing at the University of Michigan occurred in February of 2004 in the Detroit Free Press. And it was widely greeted with incredible cynicism and hostility. Um, In fact, uh, the same month, I I found myself on a program with the leading scholar in medical malpractice and clinical medicine. Um, At the time, thankfully, I didn't know who he was. But uh, after I uh, presented my ideas and early data to polite applause, he got up and pointed at me and said to the audience, this man will single-handedly bankrupt the University of Michigan in five years. Oh, man. Um, they, they since published, a group of authors published um, a, a seminal piece, I think it was in Health Affairs in 2006, making even worse claims that, that I would uh, bankrupt the very foundation of medicine, modern medicine, because they believed that only 2% of medical errors ever found their way to a courtroom. So that if we were open and honest about this problem, um, medicine couldn't afford the fallout. Mm -hmm. That that was widely believed as true, even though there, to this day, there has been no evidence that being honest about this actually costs more money. It's just the opposite. So in 2005 or 2006, I came to the attention of Senator uh, Hillary Clinton and then Senator Barack Obama. And and, uh, uh, Senator Clinton was very interested in seeing what parts of the University of Michigan uh, model could be applied on a national basis. Uh, By 2008, when President Obama took office, uh, he instructed Kathleen Sebelius to study our approach and uh, $30 million was made um, uh, available for a large study done by the Department of Health and Human Services into the question by that time, uh, what was the transportability of this? So the, the rap on me first was that I was uh, crazy and reckless. Um, the, next, the next evolution of that um, was sort of a variation on that, that Wherever Boothman goes, he can make it happen, but it's personal to me and not transportable. So the government was studying the transportability of this. And if you look at the national or at the um, New England Journal of Medicine, uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama uh, did a nice article. Um, I think that was in 2006 or 2007 about the importance of this Michigan model to um, uh, national um, health care safety. Um, the studies were done between 2008 and 2012, and they resulted in what's now called the CANDOR, C-A-N-D-O-R, toolkit. And that was published by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality in uh, 2015. So the spread of this has been slow but steady. Uh, when I retired from the University of Michigan in 2018, the director of public relations pulled me aside at my uh, retirement party and said she had never seen a, uh, an, uh, an issue that was as durable and longstanding as this one, that they were still getting press requests for information about the Michigan model. 
and yet the actual spread has been uh, slow but is now accelerating. Um, and I think there's lots of reasons for the slowness um, and they kind of mix, uh, they're a mix of human nature and mm. um, uh, the fact that for literally centuries, all we have really known is a legal response to this stuff, right. uh, to these uh, harm. And um, uh, I think that that's been part of the problem. But we're now seeing this accelerate. Yeah, but I mean, is it just sort of breaking through that traditional approach? you know, that adversarial approach to, uh, you know, defending these, these claims? Yeah, I, you know, I think, I, I, I think on a human nature, um, from a human nature perspective, I think people, first of all, we are, uh, we tend to be short-sighted um, and we tend to be risk averse, don't we? I mean, we call it fight and flight and that's really what we've been doing. Um, in the literature, we refer to the status quo as deny and defend. That's very apt description of what I was doing as a trial lawyer. I was denying all allegations of uh, negligence and finding experts to support or defend care, even when my clients privately would admit that it wasn't great care. Um, so that's the status quo. And it has, in my opinion, wrought a lot of uh, harm the efforts of clinical improvement and sheltered a lot of dangerous practices and sometimes dangerous practitioners. So the idea that we needed to be more honest and more forthright and more proactive about these things because humans' lives were at stake is really important. But I think human nature often worries more about the um, present risk rather than thinking about the long term and that's part of the that is a big part of the problem um how do you balance obviously the need for honesty and transparency and those kinds of things with you know sort of the uh the threat that you know when there's something like you know uh a, a a spread of infection through like a you know dirty endoscope or something like that you know, there's a there's a class action lawsuit waiting to happen. You know, you see them, you see these lawyers on TV all the time. You know, uh, advertising for multiple. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, if you've had bad care for this, 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 and this, you know, call it, call our law office, and we'll, you know, we'll defend you. How do you sort of deal with? You know, obviously you want to be forthright and honest, but how do you also protect against things like that that can be used against you? Well, I. I think it calls for a change in mindset. So I actually confronted that uh, in my uh, career, and it literally was a client that came to me and said, uh, we just discovered for 18 years we were cleansing bronchoscopes incorrectly. Um, you can bury that. You can put that under the rug and hope that it doesn't come back to bite you. But, the, but there are a lot of problems with that. The shift in mindset, in my opinion, is that we have to see uh, not getting dragged to the table to make it right uh, as a cost, but instead as an investment. Mm. Because, because if, if I'm able to hide evidence like that, all I have taught my clients or the organization I'm working for is that it is all right to deliver substandard care to actually cause harm and you'll get away with it if you have better lawyers or smarter lawyers. 
that works completely, that is completely counterproductive to what we're, to the level of clinical accountability that is necessary to promote clinical improvement and ultimately high reliability and uh, zero harm. So you can view it any, uh, in all sorts of ways. Let me give you a good example from the very uh, early part of my career. In 1982, a birth trauma case was assigned to me, and the delivery of the baby was fully 10 years before, in 1972. Mm-hmm. And it occurred at a community hospital, and uh, it occurred because uh, a, uh, an obstetrician completely mismanaged what's called a shoulder dystocia, a baby that gets hung up in the birth canal because its shoulders are, are uh, not coming through. And there are recognized maneuvers for handling that. This physician was quite incompetent. In 1972, shortly after the birth, a risk manager and an insurance representative approached these this uh, young couple uh, that was not insured for their healthcare costs and traded a full release of claims in exchange for waiving the hospital bill, $12,000. That was in 1972. In 1982, the birth trauma case is filed, and I get it, and um, with instructions to get the case dismissed because of this release fully 10 years before. The court threw the release out because it, for a whole host of legal reasons, but and, and I ended up paying a lot of money on that case on behalf of that client. But here's the scary part. In 1972, I'm quite sure that that risk manager and insurance representative were doing high fives in the hallway because they thought they had dodged a huge financial um, uh, train, right? Unfortunately, in the 10 years in between, that obstetrician accounted for four more birth trauma cases with, with a total of millions of dollars in loss not to mention all of the heartache and all of the damaged kids. So so how do you view these things? Is it really a good idea to bury this, uh, these kinds of things and not confront them in a principled way? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, and I think we need to take a much longer view of this because the standard status quo has actually um, uh, perpetuated the clinical problems, not fixed them. And, and like you said, you know, uh, hospitals are starting to come around on this and sort of, you know, slowly, I guess, uh, taking that approach as opposed to the the, the old one. Yeah. The, uh, so I would say in the last 20 years, we're now seeing an acceleration of an embrace of this. For many years, many, many years. Both systems embrace the idea. I mean, once they stopped thinking that I was insane, they started embracing the idea, but they didn't necessarily normalize it. So um, for many years, I've heard health systems say, oh, we're, we're also doing that. And they would invariably point to an indefensible case or a small case, which they um, actually were able to settle it out of court. The real goal here in this approach is to normalize the entire approach, to get to the bedside every time the patient has had a clinical outcome that was not planned or not expected, 
get to the bedside, even before you know whether it occurred as a result of malpractice or not. Um, and then treat that patient in a completely transparent way, not in a naive way. There's nothing naive or Pollyanna about this at all. In fact, it really requires a fair amount of clinical discipline because you can't just go and do a mea culpa at the bedside before you know what you're talking about. Right, right. One of the, you know, one of the occupational hazards is you can't unring that bell, right? Yeah. Um, so you get to the bedside and you promise full disclosure. You say to that patient, um, we will, we are here for you. We're not running for cover. We're not circling the wagons. We're, we're here for you. We will help you through this new medical reality that you have to deal with. But in the meantime, we promise that you're going to get a completely honest uh, disclosure of what happened once we understand it. Um, but we have to do the same thing with ourselves. The so-called disclosure really starts with the disclosure to ourselves about, um, or our clients, um, whether or not the care met their standards. Um, because, and that's the jumping off point. I mean, from that point on, everything should be about patient safety. And the idea of being responsible and accountable to an injured patient who deserves it is all part of that larger goal of uh, accelerating clinical safety. Um, so tell me a little bit about uh, Frescani's uh, Safety 2025 initiative and how this all ties into it. Well, um, I'm glad you asked because um, I was so pleased to become part of Frescani's um, um, repertoire, if you will. Um, I would characterize it this way. If you think about Press Ganey, which started in corporate life, uh, measuring patient expectations and patient satisfaction, but has expanded a considerable um, depth and breadth of expertise across the whole patient care continuum. So I, I think in terms of this timeline, it starts with all of us as patients and what do we expect uh, from our healthcare what is our experience? What are caregivers' experience? Um, and you carry that through high reliability and patient safety. The niche that I occupy it has been a gap in most uh, healthcare organizations, and that is, what do you do with that patient who is harmed in the, the course of their medical care? I was able, uh, I had followed Presgany in my own consulting work. I had followed Presgany in two different client engagements and realized that the foundational principles underpinning high reliability and the search for zero harm were exactly the same that were underpinning my uh, work in that small but important niche, how do you deal with a patient who's been harmed in their care? Um, so the way I view this is that I'm uh, offering and, um, and helping our clients complete that high reliability journey that you, you can't preach, uh, for instance, you can't preach an open culture in which people are unafraid to talk about medical mistakes if the lawyers, every time a patient gets hurt, are telling the very staff um, that are involved not to talk about it. Right. So all of these things have to be consistent with the foundational elements um, uh, underpinning high reliability, which is really a search for zero harm. And that's where I fit in. And there's one other 
part, one other part we haven't talked about, and that is a different and proactive and um, principled ver uh, view of peer review. Um, so one of the things that I've found is the second generation of hospitals that uh, have a, uh, embraced CRP next come back and say, now that we are um, free and encouraged to take an insightful view of our own behavior and our own um, performance, we now realize that we have some problems. Uh, we have some practitioners who, who may have a history of not really being very good. We have some dangerous practices and we need to get on top of that. So what we're seeing, uh, what I've seen now is that with those health systems that are um, successful in embracing CRP, uh, it's very predictable that they'll come back and say, now can you help us uh, now that we've taken a very sanguine look at our own performance over the, over time, can you help us improve in these selected areas? Often in high risk um, surgeries, for instance. Um, so that's that's how I fit in with the Press Ganey um, uh, uh, scope, really. And the 2025 initiative is uh, basically challenging the healthcare industry to achieve an 80% reduction in patient harm by that year. Correct. That's right. Yeah. That's great. Uh, do you think that's and, and harm? Harm is an interesting concept, Jay, and um, uh, we can get really philosophical. I mean, the, the Prescani goal is um, is aspirational, and it is mm. absolute. I fully support it. Um, how you define harm, I think, uh, in this in a clinical environment, is an interesting question. Um, but I think what we're really talking about are uh, patient outcomes that are less than uh, desirable, um, uh, but caused by avoidable uh, mistakes and avoidable processes uh, that we could, um, with a little more thought, uh, fix and avoid harm to patients. And I mean, you know, like you said earlier, it's, you know, the progress is, has been slow, but it seems like people are coming around. So that's a good thing. It's it's slow, but every time I worry or think about it being slow, I think of the specialty of anesthesiology. When I first started in practice, the so-called anesthesiology accidents were probably leading the pack in terms of catastrophic injuries. They're almost, um, uh, they are almost gone. Anesthesiology as a specialty has very methodically followed uh, practices which are pretty mirrored uh, in Prescani's high reliability approach, uh, and it's amazing to me as an as a specialty what anesthesiology has done. So we're seeing that the point of that is yes, this is an uh, unavoidably dangerous um, uh, uh, practice of medicine, but it is possible, and it's not um, it's not unrealistic to think that we can get to a place where. Uh, we can sharply reduce um, avoidable medical errors and injuries. Well, Rick, I want to thank you for joining me today. This has been uh, very uh, educational, and uh, and you know, obviously, uh, you're, you're you're doing some good work here. So keep it up. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for your interest. All right. That wraps up episode 48 of PSQH the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time. You can find more information about the show and listen on demand episodes at psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.